Please stand, if you are able, for the Gospel reading. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have a mind, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Take your seats. So in page 33 of your journal, if you're tracking alongside us and taking notes, we're in Lent. And that, that period of, of journeying towards Easter, where we pause, we pray, we fast, we give some things up, and we think about our generosity towards others. But I want to dive straight into our gospel text that Cass just read for us beautifully this morning. This gospel text sort of offers us two things to think about almost immediately. Two things that I think St. Mark, the gospel writer, wants us to see. The first thing, the very first thing, and I wonder if you picked it up in the text, is the strangeness of Jesus' message. Jesus offers the, the listener not what we would expect. Jesus has just been confessed as the Messiah. He's, he's just been announced just a few verses before as the one that we're hoping in to bring salvation. And then Jesus starts to talk about inviting us to self-denial, to take up your cross, to lose your life, Jesus says to his disciples. That's the first thing. It's just a little bit weird. The second thing is the disciples engage with what Jesus is saying. And what we see in the disciples, and there's always a hint when it's the disciples in the gospel, that it's kind of also us. As we read the gospel, so often we are the disciples. So the, the second thing is this, the disciples' inability to really grasp what Jesus is saying. Jesus is kind of slippery. Sort of one sense, you understand what Jesus is saying, and then it turns out afterwards, you didn't really understand what Jesus is saying. In fact, at many points during the gospels, Jesus says to his disciples, do you understand me? And his disciples are always like, yes. But we know it secretly, no. It's like when your teacher in school is like, do you get it? And everybody says yes, because we're just worried that if we say no, we'll be here for longer. So, so Jesus is like, do you get what I'm saying, disciples? The disciples are like, absolutely, we get what we're saying. And then very quickly afterwards, it becomes immediately apparent to everybody that they have no idea what's going on. And so Jesus comes along and they realize he's the Messiah. We've just heard that just a few moments ago in chapter, in chapter eight, before the reading that we read today. Jesus is the Messiah. And now 
He's talking about dying. He's talking about sacrificing. He's talking about taking up your cross. See, the disciples, they knew that following Jesus was risky. Following a Messiah is always risky in this time period, in this context. It's just that they didn't quite know why. They thought they knew why. A Messiah turns up and starts to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. That must have something to do with the Romans, right? That must mean that our oppressors, the people who, are, who have invaded our land and are holding us as oppressed people in our own country, surely the arrival of the Messiah and the kingdom of God means that we will push out the Romans. So perhaps the risk of following a Messiah is that you'll get hurt in battle. Perhaps the risk is that you will, you will be injured and you will be hurt as you do the fight that needs to happen to bring liberation. And then Jesus starts to do his work and it seems to involve not a lot of fighting Romans, but definitely some casting out of demons and some throwing out of issues of people's health and healing people. So maybe the risk becomes fighting demons or maybe the risk becomes catching some illness. I mean, I don't know if Jesus heals an illness, is it still contagious? So you've never thought that before ever, have you? <laughs> me either, it came to me right now and I'm like, I'm gonna go with it and see if that makes sense. So, <laughs> so you know what I'm thinking about tonight. <laughs> maybe that's the risk. Maybe it's not Romans, maybe it's demons. Maybe it's not Romans, maybe it's illness. But then when, if you listen to whenever Jesus speaks, he doesn't speak about power. He doesn't speak about fights. He doesn't speak about miracles even being the main thing. He speaks about relationship. He talks about your connection and your following of him. The call of Jesus is a call to trust him to trust him even when he says things that don't make sense, to trust him even when he seems to be doing the very opposite of what you expected him to do. Rowan Williams says it like this, a savior who walks through Galilee and Judea healing and doing wonders at random would not be somebody who invited relationship. Such a savior might invite wonder, awe, admiration or bafflement, but not necessarily trust. But we're gonna need trust if we're gonna follow Jesus. We're gonna have to trust him because he's gonna call us to tensions. And one of the reasons that the church has practiced Lent for many, many years is to appreciate and live in those tensions. That Jesus liberates us and sets us free, but so often we find ourselves caught in various problems and issues and in need of repentance again, of need of constantly recalibrating our lives, resetting our lives. The image of the cross, which so many of us see on churches around the world and the cross is a symbol of freedom, except that when Jesus talks about the cross, everybody knew that the cross wasn't a path to freedom, it was a path to death. The message of Jesus is complex, it's countercultural. And I think it's particularly complex for those of us that live in the contemporary world. We don't like the call to give up, we don't like the call to sacrifice, we definitely don't like the implication that maybe we should change, that maybe we're not absolutely perfect exactly the way we are. And so when we come to something like Lent, I wonder if you feel this in the same way that I do, but there's a kind of almost physiological reaction to it sometimes. I don't really want to do Lent. I don't want to give up. I don't want to be restricted. I don't want to not do whatever the heck I want. And sometimes we get super clever. We even theologize our way out of Lent. Like, oh, I don't need to do that because I'm free. Peter takes Jesus' sight. <laughs> Peter takes Jesus aside when he talks about sacrifice and death and taking up the cross. Uh, Chris Green in his book that some of us are reading throughout this Lent says this, let those words sink in. Peter takes Jesus aside. The moment Peter realizes what Jesus intends, he comes apart. He panics. And in his panic, 
He tries to take Jesus apart. He takes Jesus aside, trying to find a side of Jesus he can reason with and appeal to, a side of Jesus that answers to his own preferred self-image. Like we love to laugh at Peter, patron saint of saying the wrong thing. Or perhaps we see Peter as a little pompous here. Like, you know, I'm gonna take Jesus aside and sort him out a little bit. But I wonder if Peter's just like all of us. Just the message of Jesus has shocked him so much. It's just not what he expected to hear that he can't make sense of it because his model is that Jesus must make sense to his worldview. And if Jesus doesn't make sense to his worldview, he's gonna do his best to try and fit Jesus into it. I think we know that tension as Jesus followers. Like, I know what I would like to happen, God, so can you make that happen? How often are our prayers, God, I know how to sort this problem out, can you just do it? And, and what Peter's kind of doing is what we all do. Like, I don't really like your way of fixing it, Jesus, so what if we try my way of fixing it because I really know how to solve things. Peter is all of us. He wants Jesus, but not the cross. He wants the, the gospel, but without the sacrifice. So he gets himself in front of Jesus and rebukes him. I mean, just let that sink in as well, that Peter rebukes Jesus. We don't know exactly what Peter says. Like, you're the Messiah, Jesus. I just said it a minute ago, and you told me I was right. And now you're talking about dying and being crucified? I don't know if any of you have watched The Chosen. In that TV series, I think they do a really good job of representing Peter as almost taking on this role of, I'm gonna look after everybody, especially Jesus. And if you think about that, you can kind of imagine Peter saying, not on my watch, Jesus. Like you might go to Jerusalem, but as long as I'm breathing, you're not dying. He thinks he's doing what a Messiah needs. But Peter, perhaps he drags us in the contemporary context into a question. Perhaps a question that presents itself to people who gather in a church on a Sunday morning. Perhaps the question is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Ultimately, I suppose that's then the question, how do I follow Jesus, which is the question that Lent calls us to ponder. What does it look like for me to follow Jesus, the Jesus who calls us to give up, sacrifice, deny ourselves, follow him? I recently heard the writer and pastor Mark Sayers suggest that potentially the first question we need to ask is what's the cultural context that I find myself in and how is that affecting how I understand what it is to follow Jesus? Peter has his reasons for saying, no, not like this Jesus. What are ours? And Sayers continues to suggest that, that we live in this contemporary world, perhaps if, if you're listening to me today, let's just say it affects us. We live in a new kind of individualism. It's developed in the West, that we would, and it would generally be described that we would be defined as the neoliberal individual. Now, I know categorically that suggesting to a group of people in Alberta that they might be categorized by something with the word liberal in it is a way to get fired very fast. So be patient with me. No, we're not up for that joke. Okay. That's how tense it is right now. Neoliberals, not a comment about your political standing, right? But rather to describe ourselves as neoliberal is to describe us as a group of people, as a community, as a society who have matured within unrestrained social and economic contexts. We've grown up in a world that is wide open for us. Think about it like this. Think about your predecessors, maybe your parents or your grandparents. They lived in what we might describe as a disciplinary culture. Life was governed by very strict moral codes. A clear sense of what should be done and what should not be done. 
Some of those things were bad. Some of those things you might think were good. We're not going to talk about that today. But a neoliberal society is different. Rather than a set of rules that constantly say you should do this and you shouldn't do that, we live now in a massive world of things you could do, of options. We live in a world of can, could, opportunities, and possibilities. And this is a profound shift. It's a shift that we've not really seen in society before. It gives us openness and freedoms and, and opportunities and potentials that our predecessors could never have dreamed of happening or having or being able to live within. But this shift is also doing something in us as humans. Think about how we talk about the past, and you must, you must have noticed this in your conversations. We often speak about the past and we tell stories of repression. Like in the past, we were unable to do X, Y, or Z. And many of those things are profoundly problematic. So it's good for us as society that we start to ditch the shackles of racism, although we've still got work to do there. And sexism, again, still work to do there. But our stories of repression are tempted to see everything as repressive from the past. And now in the contemporary West, we're offered something different. Unlimited opportunity. You could say it like this. We are seduced by choice. We are pre presented always with the possibility of the could. So metaphorically, you might imagine it like this. Whereas our predecessors were presented constantly by an angry person who said, no, you shouldn't do that and it will be bad if you do. We are presented by a friendly person who says yes to anything that you want. So when Peter comes to Jesus, <laughs> we relate to Peter. Because the call to take up your cross is in direct opposition to the society that we live in that says you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, if you want to. So perhaps our caution is not to laugh at Peter or dismiss Peter, but see ourselves in Peter. That truthfully, what so many of us want is Jesus on our own terms. Because that's how we do things in our contemporary world. I'll have what I want, when I want it, the way that I want it. So Peter perhaps like us, definitely like me, begins to rebuke Jesus. Don't miss the words here. There's a couple of words in this passage you want to pay close attention to. Begins to rebuke Jesus. He doesn't get far. Okay, this is not a great strategy in the Gospels to take it up with Jesus, right? Notice that he, the text says he rebukes him. We've seen rebuking happen before. It's what Jesus does to wind and waves and storms. It's what Jesus does to demons. Just a pro tip. Don't speak to Jesus the way that he speaks to demons, right? So, some of you, that's all you'll remember from this whole sermon, but it will go far for you, don't worry. So Peter begins to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus interrupts him. And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you, look at this, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter has a context, like you and I have a context, and Peter is reading Jesus through his context. He's seeing what makes sense to him, and what Jesus is saying isn't working for him right now. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to him. I don't think Jesus is calling Peter Satan here. That's the devil's work to name us badly. But Jesus seems to be pointing out to Peter what's happening in him right now. Like you're aligning yourself here, Peter, with something that you might not want to align yourself to. You're, you're positioning yourself as the opposition to Jesus. And you probably, I think Jesus knows in Peter's heart, that's not really what you want to do. There's three stunning things happen in this statement. Get behind me that Jesus offers. The first thing I want you to notice is that that's not where Jesus is right now in relation to Peter. Peter has taken Jesus aside. 
You imagine he's taking Jesus aside and he's sort of looking at him face to face. If you were gonna rebuke somebody, you're, you're eyeballing them, right? You're, you're, you're having, you're having a, maybe you're the type of person that texts your rebukes, I don't know. But, but Jesus is, is probably face to face with Peter in this moment. Peter's in front of him, he's rebuking him, he's putting his model onto Jesus. That's important to us because of this word, get behind me. Now, Mark's gospel is written in Greek. And what you find is earlier on in Mark's gospel, when Jesus meets Peter in a fishing boat, we talked about it a few weeks ago, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, come, follow me. And the word that's translated behind me here is exactly the same word that we encounter back there. Jesus says to Peter, come, get behind me, follow me. So when, when Jesus says, get behind me, He's pointing out that Peter is no longer in the place that a disciple should be. Disciples are called to be behind Jesus. And yet, here we are, things are turned upside down. And then number three, just read it. Let me read it again for you. I want you to see if you spot this yourself. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Did you see it? I wonder if you saw just a really cool little thing that Jesus does there. Now, I'm gonna help you with this. Tori, you're back on. I said I'd choose someone else in the second service, but I changed my mind. I'm not Jesus, I'm allowed to do this. So Tori's gonna come up here for a moment. This is David and Tori does amateur dramatics. You be Peter, I'll be Jesus. Um, no, tell you what, you be Jesus, I'll be Peter. That feels more humble. Um, and, uh, and suits your personality better. Um, so I want you to imagine, so here's the scene. You guys are the disciples, you've grown a bit. Um, but still no idea what's going on. So, so we're all in only Jesus, we're in our roles. So Peter takes Jesus aside. So he's talking to the disciples. Here's me, I'm Peter. He says, take up your cross. Peter takes Jesus aside. And he says, not on my watch, Jesus, not on my watch. Now let's read the text. And while I read the text, Tori's gonna follow what the text says Jesus does. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. Do you see it? I wonder if you see it. I mean, don't be distracted by Jesus, okay? I know it's hard. But notice the text says Jesus turns back towards the disciples. So where is Peter now? He's behind him. Peter has been placed by Jesus exactly where Jesus wants him to be. And it's only after he's turned away that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. Thank you very much, Tori. Tori Hofstad, people. If this, if this pastoring thing doesn't work out for you, Tori, amateur dramatics is similarly badly paid. So, um, so, so you, may, you may want to join us. Like, think of how gorgeous this is, that Jesus turns away from Peter and in doing so puts Peter exactly where he's supposed to be. So his condemnation is not a condemnation. We might hear this rebuke, get behind me, Satan. And we might assume, oh, look, Jesus is casting Peter out. He's pushing Peter away. He's jettisoning Peter out into the background. Actually, what Jesus does is exactly what Jesus always does, is he puts Peter exactly where Peter needs to be. And it's only after Peter is safely where he's supposed to be that the rebuke comes. Get behind me, Peter. Get behind me. Get where you're supposed to be. St. Augustine says it like this, how hard and painful does this appear? But what he commands is neither hard nor painful when he, that's Jesus himself, helps us in such a way so that the very thing he requires may be accomplished. 
Whatever seems hard in what is enjoined, love makes easy. Because Jesus loves Peter. Peter is Jesus' friend. Jesus is Peter's friend. And Jesus does to his friends what he always does to his friends. He loves them. And, and Peter only hears the rebuke once he's back in the place of safety, back where he's supposed to be, back where he was called to be. Come, follow after me, says Jesus to Peter in a boat. And when Peter gets a little lost and a little turned around and gets himself in front of Jesus and says, not on my watch, Jesus, Jesus puts him right back where he's supposed to be. He says, get behind me, get behind me. Here's what I think. The unfettered choices that we face in our society today are oppressing us. They're not actually helping us. Previous generations were repressed, and in many cases they were repressed by what they shouldn't do. But we're oppressed by what we must do. You must maximize your life. You have unlimited choice, so you've got to take advantage of it. Just imagine if you didn't. Imagine if you didn't live life to the max. Imagine if you weren't fitter, healthier, or happier, as the great theologians Radiohead say. What if, nobody knows Radiohead anymore, that's just me just showing my age, sorry. What if you don't eat Instagram-worthy food? What if you don't exercise on the right program? What if you vacation in the wrong place? Are you willing to hack your life into the ideal form, the whatever the current app tells you you must do? This is the life we live. It's a life of unlimited choice. But notice this. In a society of could and opportunity and possibility, what happens when it doesn't work? When your life's not Instagram worthy? When you're not living in the big house that your grandparents promised you you could live in if you just worked hard enough? And speak to millennials and find out about how real that pressure is for so, so many people. What happens when it doesn't work out? Here's what happens. You turn on yourself because it must only be your fault. If there's unlimited choices and it doesn't work out for you, you must be the problem. And you turn on yourself, which might be why. For a people with unlimited opportunity, our self-esteem is lower than it has ever been. Our anxieties are higher than they have ever been. And I don't know if you notice this, we're all exhausted. David Zal points out in his wonderful book, Seculosity, that ditching Jesus hasn't actually made us less religious. It's just now that we, we deal with everything as if it's religious. Pretty much everything we engage with now is constantly whispering in our ears that you're just not good enough. Everything except Jesus, who knows you're not good enough and it doesn't seem to bother him. He knows that you're going to get in front of him and try and rebuke him. And he's just going to turn around, put you right back where you are and remind you that you're his friend and that he loves you. Which makes me kind of wonder if Lent's really a bad thing after all. When Jesus meets an exhausted person who's constantly failing to make the grade and society's constantly speaking in your ear going, but you could be so much better than this. And Jesus turns and says, what if you denied yourself, took up your cross and just got behind me? Maybe it's exactly what we need. And then as we hear Jesus say that to us, we notice that he has turned and positioned us there already. Chris Green continues by saying, nothing good is taken from us or kept from us. All that is lost in this losing, this losing that Jesus speaks of, all that is lost is what we truly long to be free of. Everything false, foul, vicious, cruel, and diseased. The truth hurts, to be sure it does, but it never harms. 
In fact, it hurts only because it reveals how we have been harmed. God humbles but never humiliates us, never desires our shame. So, essentially what the gospel text today, I think, calls to us as modern people is it calls us to say no in a world that insists you must say yes. And I I feel this as your pastor. In a crowded marketplace of churches, there's always this temptation to make church just another place of unlimited potential. If we can be better than anything you've ever, don't go to that other church, they're terrible. We are better. This seems sort of, the church gets caught up in the market forces to behave like everything else behaves. But what if we didn't ask those questions? What if instead we ask, how's the church a reliable place, a safe place, a familiar place? Not a place that adds to the insanity of opportunity of your life, but a place of safety that helps you find your place behind Jesus. Like, can I resist the temptation as a pastor to offer a customizable faith, a faith that suits, a faith that says, come whenever you're free and don't worry about it the rest of the time. And can instead we as community, we as pastors hold space for one another behind Jesus and say, this is a really good place to be. It's good for you to be here. It's good for us to come to the Eucharist table. And if this is really a good place, what's really nice is that once we find ourselves behind Jesus, it's a safe place to fall apart. It's a safe place to not be perfect. It's a safe place to not have worked out all the opportunities that have come to you. And that's the repentance that I think Lent calls us to. It's a safe repentance. It's a giving up of all the stuff that's actually trying to harm us. It's just that we're constantly being told this stuff will make you better. And Jesus invites us back behind him because being placed behind Jesus is safe, is good, it's healthy. So with that, I wanna invite you to the table this morning. We started doing this last week and we'll continue throughout Lent that as we come to the table, we'll pray a prayer of confession. But remember, this prayer of confession is prayed behind Jesus. It's prayed in the safety of him who is your friend and who loves you and invites us truly to step unburdened into his presence. So Tori is gonna come and lead us in this prayer. and our neighbor, first in silence, and then together. Let's pray together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen.